The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, folks. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. Thanks for joining me again. Last October 2018, we did a show entitled The Immigration Crisis, an attorney's insider perspective. Our guest was attorney and law professor Sarah Rogerson. Now, eight months later, Sarah has returned to Psych Up Live to give us an update on what to most of us is a very confusing immigration situation. We're going to address questions like, are there any pathways to citizenship? Is a working visa still a viable possibility? Can a person actually seek asylum in the U.S.? How many children remain separated from parents, and for how long? Whatever happened to the dreamers? Sarah Rogerson is a clinical professor of law at Albany Law School, where she directs the Immigration Law Clinic. That's an experiential course where students represent immigrant victims of crime. Dr. Rogerson Professor Rogerson joined the Albany Law School in 2011 after completing a two-year clinical teaching fellowship at the University of Baltimore School of Law. There she taught and supervised students enrolled in the Immigration Rights Clinic. She's worked at the Human Rights Initiative of North Texas and as an associate attorney at a law firm with offices in New York and New Jersey. She's a regular contributor to WAM. Sees Radio the Roundtable. Professor Rogerson, it is my privilege to welcome you back to Psych Up Live. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah, let's start with this question. Very often when, when I'm talking about immigration or you hear people talking, they're asking with respect to immigrants, why don't they just do it the right way? Sarah, what is the right way? Are there still pathways to citizenship? They are. There are paths to citizenship, but they're very, very narrow. And what a lot of people don't realize is that immigration laws existed when most people's um, grandparents or great grandparents uh, came to this country. Most of the immigration laws back then that we have now didn't exist. So we're talking about the early 20th century is really when we see our first um, sort of immigration laws, which is much Long, you know, way after most of 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 the uh, immigrants that that people who make those comments cite to, um, you know, the the laws that we have now developed really just in the last, I would say, um, eighty years. And unfortunately, the way that they've developed, I mean, one of the first big immigration laws that we had in the earliest early 20th century was the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, a, a lot of people don't realize that that our immigration law is, is, has a foundation of basically excluding people based on race or ethnicity. Uh, and, and it hasn't gotten much better since then. And since then, we've had a patchwork of laws and policies. We do now have the Immigration and Nationality Act, uh, which, again, is just uh, over, in various iterations, just over 50 years old. And it it really um, doesn't provide a lot of, of pathways. We do have family-based immigration, which is still um, a viable path. Um, uh, some of our immigration laws were, were founded on the idea of family unity. But unfortunately, our immigration laws also afford very wide discretion to the executive branch of the government, namely the Attorney General and the Department of Justice, to enact their own policies about who they'll accept in the country. So while there may be a pathway, for example, for asylum seekers or victims of domestic violence, what the executive branch can do is limit those opportunities. And we're in an era right now that is highly restrictive under the Trump administration, 
where many, many policies are going into effect that narrow those pathways. Um, also, there are very, very long lines for the family, for some countries, um, for the family-based visas. And so what you see is for some countries, you might be able to apply first for a family member to come join you in the United States, but it could take 15 to 20 years for that process to be completed. Mm. And that, that those lines vary based on our country's opinion of that, of the, of that other country and the volume of people seeking to come here. So mm. for example, India has a very, very long waiting list. Um, and there still are other pathways to citizenship, but they are increasingly narrowing. Um, and as I said, these types of laws didn't exist when most of, uh, when, 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 you know, two or three generations ago. So if I was from India and I wasn't going to go through the family, but I was going, let's say I'm a professional working as a engineer, am, am I facing a very long wait also? Is it still the case that sometimes someone can go through employment or profession? Yes, under this administration, the employment-based visas are being narrowed as well. Um, the way that the administration a- achieves that goal of, of having fewer uh, employment-based visas is they, they reduce the cap. Um, all, almost all of the, of the visas that we're talking about have a, have a certain cap. For example, U visas for victims of violent crime in the United States uh, are, are capped at around 10,000 annually. Mm. And, and employment visas are also capped. I, I don't practice in that area, but I've heard horror stories from immigration law practitioners who do solely um, immig- you know, employment-based immigration that, that they literally have to um, position themselves in terms of where their, their applications are loaded on a FedEx truck uh, to be closer to the to the rear of the truck, so that their applications um, get off the truck and into the the immigration processing facility more quickly. That's that's a ridiculous process that that lawyers in other areas of the law don't don't have to be concerned with. Hmm. So you sometimes wonder. There was a story of a family coming from Romania. And that's the case where the little four-month-old was separated from the father. Um, the mother and the other child were, were sent back to Romania. And um, you, when you read their story, and we'll talk a little bit about it with the separation of children, I keep thinking, do these folks have any idea of the restrictions? Would In a million years, would the father have expected to end up in detention with his child somewhere else in the country and forced to care. I, I don't know, Sarah, um, in terms of asylum seeking, if you are desperate, and I wonder how would people even know what it is that we accept as a reason for asylum seeking. In terms of asylum seeking, let's just talk about that for a minute. What are the present valid reasons in this country that someone could come in with the idea of possibly seeking asylum? So our, our asylum standards are codified in our Immigration and Nationality Act. They're in the law, um, and they're based on the international definition of a refugee. Um, and that is someone who um, has a well-founded fear of persecution um, based on um, their race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group and political or political opinion. And, and that group, membership in a particular social group, um, it sort of has to encompass a bunch of other things. What you didn't hear me list and what is not articulated um, in the statute uh, but has been litigated um, are things like you know being persecuted because of your gender or your sexual orientation or your um, your diagnosis. There are there are people who in other countries would be tortured as a as a result of um, what would be in the United States a medical uh, psychological diagnosis, but in in other countries maybe grounds for detention and torture. Um, and so that political that particular social group category 
uh, encompasses a, a lot of of other types of asylum seekers. And this administration has gone to great lengths to disqualify what were previously valid uh, particular social groups. Uh, for example, the attorney general, one of the um, attorneys general under this administration, uh, recertified the case involving um, victims of domestic violence and, and, and young people fleeing gang violence uh, and, and took that case back and said, you know, we're going to restrict the ability of these two groups of people to uh, seek asylum at our borders, which is a, a lawful way of entering this country, by the way. Um, seeking asylum, you, you're not required to, to be a visa holder uh, in order to seek asylum in this country. Uh, you, you present yourself at a border and, and articulate a credible fear of persecution. And, and that's actually, even, even though technically you're undocumented, that's still a lawful way to enter the United States based on the immigration law. Okay, with that in mind, would you have to present yourself at a legal point of entry? You couldn't just somehow figure a way to cross the border or to come in or to come here, I guess, to visit someone and stay. Actually, it depends. So um, some asylum seekers are able to secure a visitor's visa. And then, as you said, they, they'll overstay the visa because they have a fear of returning. There is a process to claim asylum. Um, going to your prior point, it's a very complicated and difficult process. And so mm. not a lot of people know about it before they get here, uh, how difficult it will be. Um, but if they're lucky enough to be connected to a legal services organization or through faith-based community or mental health community, those are two communities that often refer asylum cases to us. If they're lucky enough to be connected in that way, um, lawyers can apply affirmatively on their behalf, um, which means they're not in removal proceedings. They're not being ordered, you know, in, they're not in the process of being ordered deported by an immigration judge. If someone presents themselves at a point of entry, as opposed to entering unlawfully, um, there's a different process. And right now, that process is, is deeply complicated because of the zero tolerance policy under the Trump administration, which is basically detained first and asked questions later. Whereas asylum seekers used to be released on their own recognizance in order to pursue their asylum claim, now that's no longer the case. Somebody also can enter the country without permission whatsoever, uh, and if undetected, um, still be able to seek asylum, they have to do so within one year of entering the country. They can, they can apply affirmatively. Um, and there are waivers written into our immigration laws that would basically forgive the unlawful entry. Um, but, it's called a waiver process. But in that case, Sarah, as soon as they made the case, if they had been here illegally, that they were seeking asylum would that, in most cases, immediately result in them being in detention? No, not usually. Um, and in, it, it's, it, it, that's what's so heartbreaking about some of the asylum seekers that we saw um, in our area in upstate New York at the Albany County Jail when essentially 350 people from the border were, were transferred up to the Albany County Jail is that some of those people, many, most of those people actually tried to present themselves at a port of entry um, lawfully and, and claim asylum and they were still detained. And that's not supposed to happen. Um, it's, it's a policy move by the Trump administration because the theory is if we, if we let people who are fleeing for their lives know that they will be locked up in a jail, then maybe they won't come. And that we know that deterrence policy just does not work. Hmm. So it seems like it's a very difficult situation. And this may explain why there's so many people in detention. I looked at these numbers and you correct me. So in 2005, we had 19,708 people detained. Today we have 44,699. That's a lot of people detained. Yeah, and I think more recent numbers have it up over 56,000. Okay. 
I would say, however, that, um, and those are apprehensions, right? So detention versus apprehensions. But at this moment, most apprehensions are resulting in detention. Um, I will say that with all the talk of the crisis at the border, these are actually historically low numbers in terms of apprehensions, high numbers in terms of detention, low numbers in terms of people presenting themselves at the border. Um, historical highs have been upwards of 1.6 million in terms of border border apprehensions in, so, in annual oh, terms. Okay, so you're saying something interesting. There's less people coming through but many more people being detained and put in detention centers. Correct. Okay. And what if I am one of those people, what is my recourse in terms of any kind of legal representation? So the Constitution, well, the Immigration and Nationality Act and the Constitution guarantee that immigrants have a right to counsel if they can afford one and hire one. There is no government... Um, guaranteed right to counsel, uh, unlike in criminal matters. And that's because immigration law is considered a civil matter rather than a criminal matter, even though the punishment is criminal. <laughs> and so what we have is a situation where these folks are not given a lawyer. Uh, they may, and access to lawyers is greatly restricted, including particularly in the federal detention facilities. Um, it's very, very difficult to see your client if they're being held in one of those facilities. Um, and so we're working really hard in New York State um, to make sure that at least immigrants who are detained in New York have a right to counsel. Um, they don't yet. We're working on, on getting that off the ground. And there are programs um, in place in New York, the first of, of their kinds to, to basically provide a lawyer to people who are in removal proceedings. But that's very unique and specific to New York. Most people face deportation without a lawyer. Okay, we're going to have to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with attorney and law professor Sarah Rogerson. We're trying to make sense of what is a very difficult situation now, the immigration crisis, deportation, detention, and we're going to be speaking about the, the dreamers and children who've been separated. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. There are many people who claim to be dog experts, yet they don't really provide a connection between dog owners and their best friend. This is where the BS stops. Listen for Taming the Wild and Your Dog with expert author and nationally recognized dog trainer Brian Bailey. Each show has experts, professional trainers, and veterinarians to give you the right answers. Listen for the safety and well-being of your dog. Listen every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with attorney and law professor Sarah Rogerson. We were just talking about how people could possibly get representation. New York is in the forefront of trying to get that for people. The question, Sarah, that we've seen it on the news, and I was with a group that was community group responding to immigrants, and there's recent fear and alarm about threats of mass arrests and deportations. Is there anything that you could weigh in on that? Well, that, that comes from a recent statement from the president himself, who is vowing to, um, I think it was in a tweet and then a follow-up press conference where he said that he would be um, a- asking the Department of Homeland Security to, um, to, to round up additional individuals. This dates all the way back to when he first became president. One of the first things that he did was, was issue an executive order that expanded both the amount of time um, that someone can be in the country um, and and he deported essentially without ever seeing a judge. He expanded that from a couple of weeks to, to two years, and he expanded the geography of where that could happen. It used to be within a certain distance from any border, and now it's anywhere in the United States. So, so, would, so yeah, who, would be, who would be the people who would be most vulnerable here to this? Anybody who's been here... Well, first of all, anybody who's undocumented is vulnerable to being detained. But those who are most vulnerable are those who have been here for less than two years. Uh, they're at risk of not only being detained, but being deported without ever seeing a judge. It's a process called expedited removal. And it's it's really damaging um, because in two years, think about all the things that you could do here. Um, in two years, you could you could build a whole new life someplace. Mm. and have that ripped out from underneath you without ever having to go through the due process of law. Now, what if you were an asylum seeker? You would have basically an affirmative defense to removal, but which means that um, you would you know, fi- assert your claim. Um, and I, 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 I don't, there would be some significant procedural difficulties in, in getting before a judge if you're in expedited removal proceedings. So it gets very in the weeds on the law. But what I will say is you have to have a particularly strong um, asylum case in order to, to, um, to win in court because, Again, the, the, under this administration, they're really going after asylum type cases and really narrowing the pathways to uh, to, to to gain asylum in the future. And when you think of the logistics of someone who suddenly was picked up and had expedited deportation, even the family how they would respond would be very, very difficult, how quickly they could get an attorney, how quickly they, they can bring the um, asylum seeking into, into the forefront if that were the case. But I, you can almost understand why people are terrorized by this. Oh, yeah. And unfortunately, for the very first time in my practice, I'm, we're prioritizing what's called family safety plans, which is for every new client that we have, we make sure that the family has a plan in case mm. one or more of them is, is picked up by immigration and customs enforcement. Our laws are so messed up that there are lots and lots of families in this country where maybe one or two members have status and the others are undocumented, or one person is documented, the others are not, but you have United States citizen children who were born here. You may have siblings, some, half of whom are technically undocumented and here without permission, and the other half were born here. Um, if, if their parents and their older siblings are deported, then where do they go? And unfortunately, a lot of times they end up in uh, the child welfare system, which mm-hmm. has a lot of problems. 
Mm, I think um, Diane Quiera, who is ended up in the um, series Orange is the New Black, that is part of her story at 15, coming home, and both parents at that point had been, were in detention and were going to be deported. And no one seemed to even know she existed, and somehow the father eventually made a call to a neighbor who took her in. But it's I, I love the idea of at least having a safety plan. Um, it's sort of what some of the, the, the folks were talking about at, at the group that was a neighborhood link group um, where I was. So let's go right into that, to the reality. One of my colleagues has set up a, um, you can go to, it's called How Long Have the Children Been Gone? And it tells you by the second. Last night, it listed that there are, it's 439 days, 13 minutes, and 56 seconds that the children have been separated from parents. What is the recourse at this point for parents separated from children? Well, there was a lawsuit filed last summer, um, and some families were reunited pursuant to an order that was entered um, by a federal district court judge um, because of the way that immigration is situated in the law, sometimes we can, and by we, I mean lawyers, can make applications to the federal district court system, even though they don't have jurisdiction over most immigration law, um, immigration judges do. Uh, but there is no independent immigration judiciary, so that even the immigration courts are under the Department of Justice. Even the immigration courts are part of the executive branch, which people don't realize. So sometimes you can go outside of that system and ask the federal court to intervene when there are deprivations of of life liberty um, that are so deeply significant or when the government violates its own rules in enforcing immigration law. And that's part of the lawsuit that happened last summer was to say, you know, these families need to, to be reunited. The problem is that the government did a terrible job at tracking the number of families separated and, and, and the children that they had in their custody, and they continue to separate families to date. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 it's unclear, you know, there was a class identified in that lawsuit, and they made significant progress toward reuniting those families. Unfortunately, as was well documented, a lot of those reunifications happened after the psychological damage had already taken place. Yes. Uh, yeah. More recently, Caitlin Dickerson in the New York Times profiled the youngest child that was separated from its family that we know of. And that child was four months old. And she tells the story that the child was placed with foster parents in Michigan uh, and, and lived there for many months. And when reunited with his birth mother, um, had a lot of trouble even recognizing who she was and, and experienced stranger anxiety because at such a tender age, um, he was removed from his mother and placed in this new family. And of course, um, you would know better than I the, the attachment bonds that develop in those tender years. And so um, it's just devastating to, to read the stories that are coming out you know, the, the ProPublica tape that was released last summer drew a lot of attention around this issue because people could actually hear the cries of the children. And those cries haven't stopped. The government's ordering diapers in the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. We know that they're housing children separate and apart, um, in, in many cases, from their parents. In some cases, they're reunited with their parents in family detention facilities. Um, mm. But also you know, we're still experiencing family separation on the interior enforcement issue that we were just talking about. People who are who are identified at the, on in the interior of the United States who have lived here 15, 20, 30 years um, and have never been afforded a pathway to citizenship, all of a sudden under this administration, they're identified uh, and, and families are separated that way too when, you know, the head of household uh, is detained. Um, maybe working here lawfully and paying taxes. Um, that happens. Undocumented people contribute a lot of taxes um, by using tax ID numbers instead of social security numbers. Mm-hmm. They lose all of that. They lose the social security that they've that they've put into the system. And, and more importantly, they lose their family unit when that happens. It's very tragic. And as you say, <clears throat> both physically and psychologically dangerous. What confused me and was heartbreaking in the story you referred to of the four-month-old is that the father 
was put in detention and would not eat, never stopped sobbing. So when they have him do a psych, have someone do a psychiatric workup on him, I wanted to scream because which one of us would not be sobbing and refusing to eat if our four-month-old had been taken from us? And eventually they, they agreed to deport him and tell him that they're going to give him the baby on the plane, which they don't. So the question becomes, and, and maybe this is these are where the loopholes are, or this is just a, a kind of a hardened system, that baby does not get to those parents, as you say, until he's nine months old. Now, <clears throat> it seems incredulous to us, um, but if you're saying to me they're still separating them, that means we've never put in place any kind of legal um, point of reference that would prevent separations from happening here on. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of hard to um, just because of the discretion afforded to um, enforcement agents. Um, what, what we also know is that to the extent that there are unaccompanied children who are being housed, right, who, who maybe um, their parents have died and they're, they're being targeted for gang recruitment or they have a, a disabled parent who can't take care of them and they, they've made the trip alone. There are some legal protections that have been in place for a very long time. The Flores Settlement that basically say that to the extent that we're housing children alone, they need to be held in, in safe and sanitary conditions. There were oral arguments just today on litigation that's related to that settlement. Um, groups have sued the federal government. Once again, we have to keep <laughs> lawyers have to keep suing in order to make sure that the agreements are, are followed. And we know that this one isn't because we know that children are being held in terrible conditions. And the government council um, stood up and made the argument that not have that it's not uh, a violation of that agreement to not provide um, safe drinking water or toothbrushes or beds and blankets to these children. Uh, the, the judges, uh, very rightly so, um, provide, you know, scrutinized that argument uh, in court. But that's, that's, that's the situation where we are, that even, even regarding conditions of housing for children, um, this government is, is fighting tooth and nail on, on basic necessities. Well, um, this this must apply <clears throat> to the removal of soccer and any kind of extracurricular activity for undocumented minors. I think what you said before seems to apply in that these children are now under the heading of deadly loopholes because of the gang situation. And I do live very close on Long Island to situations where terrible things have happened because of the gangs, but in the sweep up to reduce the gang presence, innocent children have been taken in. And the fact that you would house children in a situation that seems less than humane, how could that help any child feel more emotionally more stable? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and lawyers are partnering with, um, you know, mental health professionals to make those arguments in our case laws and, and, and our, our briefs and cases. Um, and we often partner with mental health professionals on, on many of the cases where we represent folks and have to show, um, sometimes as part of the immigration process, you have to show mental um, distress or, you know, an impact mentally, physically, or emotionally in terms of, of showing that you've been harmed to the extent that you are eligible then for a visa. And we work with mental health professionals on that. But certainly with regard to minors, um, the mental health community is, is trying to do its best to point out how damaging this is for the development of children. And you're right, um, the New York Immigration Coalition recently issued a, a, a fairly extensive report of the crackdown on youth in Long Island under the pretense that they were engaged in gang activity, uh, which found that far more innocent children were targeted in, in those roundups wrongly um, than, than, than gang activity, you know, legitimate gang activity identified. And so um, we haven't solved the gang problem here in the United States, but it's not it's not an immigration problem um, mm-hmm. in terms of immigration enforcement. 
on the interior. It is a, a problem of international humanitarian aid and mm -hmm. us cutting off these countries uh, and, and creating um, situations where children in these countries often have no other choice because the countries are being run by the gangs. And that's, right. that's the problem is that in some of these, in, in some parts of Honduras, there are no police because the gangs are the police. And in other parts, there, there are no gangs because the police are the gangs. And, and that's what ref asylum and refugee law was set up for, was if you have this systemic, endemic persecution of groups of people um, based on characteristics that they, they can't avoid, um, they should be entitled to protection if they find their way here to the United States. And again, I can't stress enough, us reducing aid to these countries that are struggling with poverty, endemic poverty and these social issues makes the problem worse. And, and not a lot of attention is being paid to, to those facts. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, we are significantly cutting aid to those countries. In one case, and, and it's in Valerie Lucelli's um, uh, book, Tell Me How It Ends, uh, a youngster, a youngster comes here to escape the gangs. He's he, he goes to a high school here on Long Island, and the gangs find him, knock all his teeth out, and by some miracle, a the the um, there's a program at one of the colleges, and some pro bono lawyers, Sarah, take up his case and re. Uh, send him to another area in New York where he can find some safety. But to think that these children are not fleeing for their lives is really to overlook the amount of suffering and the the harm that part of our government structure continues to inflict. We're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're talking about the very important, confusing, and in some ways tragic situation, although Lawyers are addressing it, mental health are addressing it. So we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about what's going on with the immigration crisis, how about the dreamers, how about, how about other people who are caught in this situation. Stay with us. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. Welcome back, folks. We're speaking with Professor Sarah Rogerson, the head of the Immigration Law Clinic at Albany. For years, she's been working in the immigration field. Um, Sarah, during the break, we were talking about dreamers. What is the status of dreamers at this point? Well, so it it, it kind of depends on what you mean by dreamers, but we have um, a couple of, when we talk about dreamers initially, we were talking about, you know, the, the young people, the, the students, um, young professionals who, under the Obama administration, really organized an, a vi- an exceptionally effective movement to say, um, you know, we we came here when we were kids, and we're contributing to your to to American society. We are Americans. We feel American to our core, and we don't deserve to be treated like second class citizens just because there is no pathway to citizenship for us under existing law. And what the Obama administration um, ended up doing, because there was, um, you know, a lot of um, resistance in Congress to uh, the DREAM Act, uh, the several iterations of it over many, many years, um, President Obama essentially um, spearheaded a program that we now know of as DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It originally also included a provision for parents. Um, and, and what that is, it, it's not a pathway to citizenship, but it is deferred action, which is a legal term that basically means that the government lawyers will not try to deport you um, or will not argue that you should be deported. It's a promise from the government not to deport you. It doesn't provide much in terms of an immigration benefit, aside from employment authorization. Um, And you have to separately apply to be able to work with deferred action. Are you able able to apply using DACA for citizenship? No. Nope. There is no pathway to citizenship. There's no pathway to a green card through DACA. Mm. And that's what the dreamers were fighting for, uh, a more sturdy path. And this was sort of the the compromise under the Obama administration to at least make sure that these these young people would not be deported. So they really are in no man's land. They really are. And unfortunately, now that they've given their information to the federal government, the government knows where they are. Um, and has them on their radar. And so when the Trump administration tried to end DACA, um, a lot of, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of young people um, were put at risk. And so um, I I advocated locally with local groups um, to express outrage about this. And and lawyers across the country um, worked really hard to file lawsuits to keep that from happening. And right now, um, there is a, a federal court order that keeps DACA in place. So we have several DACA clients that, that my students work with here at the clinic. And, and all of them, so far, so good for our renewals. So far, we've been able to renew, um, make, make those applications for our DACA uh, cases, but but again, they're they're constantly under attack. Their their cases are still at the at the at the mercy of the judicial branch, and and this this government wants to end that program. There is some movement in the House of Representatives, um, the Dream and Promise Act, most recently um, in May uh, last month. What had some movement and passed the House Judiciary Committee. Unfortunately, it faces a, a very large uphill battle. Even if it's passed by the House of Representatives, it will likely probably be blocked in the Senate. And, and so the dreamers keep pushing. And in the meantime, the backstop is the federal judiciary, which is holding the status quo for now. The the tragedy is how talented some of these young people are and the the drain of losing this talent, as well as validating the fact that 
They know nothing but American culture. They came as children. So they really already are integrated into the culture. But as they get a little older and marry, and they may marry citizens, the question is going to be the status of their children. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I know there. It's, it's definitely a very sympathetic group of people. And um, it's really impressive, you know, the, the, the way that they've been able to self-advocate in a, in a movement that's really been led by undocumented um, youth. Mm. Um, but, but I would point out that it, there really isn't that much difference between a dreamer and and someone who is the male head of household who's been here undocumented for 30 years and has been a tax hardworking, taxpaying American. You know, it's 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 hard with immigration because um, other folks are so easily tempted to sort of put people in buckets, and and every single case, even for the dreamers, is so unique. Uh, and individualized that we really need an overhaul of our immigration laws and we really need to figure out what our values are as a country um, instead of these sort of piecemeal, you know, who's in and who's out and why. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for, for I'm constantly advocating that um, we need to look, stop treating immigration violations as criminal violations because right. they're not. Um, they, they don't, they don't stand up to the the laws the the criminal laws that we have on the books for things like stealing and um, you know manslaughter and and horrible crimes you know um, those are not comparable to immigration violations and yet we punish them the same way that we do in some cases deportation is a death sentence because someone will be returned to a country where they will where they will be targeted and killed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You once said in our earlier show that a teenager who broke the law is in a much better position than an undocumented um, youth or a dreamer who's getting A's. That's right. In some cases, because at least then, at least in the criminal court, they may have a stronger right to counsel. And so a lawyer might see their case. We know in immigration cases that the presence of a lawyer dramatically influences whether or not the case will be successful um, by like astronomical percentages. But unfortunately, there just aren't enough immigration lawyers to to represent the number of people who need it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Part of that is because the federal government does not fund uh, legal aid offices to do work with undocumented people. It's actually prohibited that if you are a legal aid office under the Legal Services Corporation, which is the federally funded lawyers that, that many people go to for housing rights or, you know, civil rights that are violated or discrimination or, you know, pretty standard types of cases. If you can't afford a lawyer, you, you try to access a lawyer through legal aid. Legal aid is prohibited by the federal government to from they're not permitted to assist the vast majority of undocumented immigrants. And which means which means they have to find a private attorney. Or a nonprofit organization. Yeah, in like America. yours. Yeah. Mm. This yeah. is where you come in. So tell us, where have you seen things actually work? Because I know you've helped many, many people. Yeah, I mean, more more recently, um, unfortunately, the, the effort that we have to put into this is... is increasingly Herculean. So mm-hmm. immigration lawyers have to work harder for every single case that they win. Um, most recently, we assisted um, the uh, highly publicized case of a homeless shelter cook. His name's Kanima Nagorin. And he um, had lived in this country for many years. He married a United States citizen, um, his wife, Lisa. And his job was cooking uh, in in a kitchen for a homeless shelter and feeding upwards of 500 people a day. Um, Under this administration, he had been checking in regularly um, as he was supposed to do. He he had an application pending um, through uh, a family-based petition um, through marriage to stay here. And so he he was following all the rules. And they, the, when he went in for a check-in, um, they de- the, the Immigration Customs Enforcement officials decided to detain him. Uh, and then they moved him to Batavia, which was four hours away from us here in Albany. Oh, my goodness. So we assembled a team here at Albany Law School, a, a team um, in New York City that helped us with emergency 
um, federal proceedings, Gregory Copeland and Sarah Gilman, who have their own nonprofit, um, Equal Defense Fund. And then we had uh, help with the University of Buffalo School of Law, Nicole Hallett and her students. Because Kanima was moved to the western part of the state, he was moved to a federal court jurisdiction that we are not admitted in here in Albany. So we got this full team together across the state to argue his case. Um, his application was approved shortly after his case hit the media. And then the federal court um, intervened and ultimately we were able to um, keep him here in the United States and we're working wow. on but as you say, look, I mean, it's fabulous. But look at look at the, what it took to to protect this man. So, in the interest of time, if our listeners are mental health workers, families of immigrants, um, other attorneys, what are the names of any organizations that you think would be valuable for people to know? Um, if you're interested in border issues, the, some of the leading orga- organizations doing incredible work on the border are the Innovation Law Lab. Um, you can Google all of these organizations. They all have um, are, 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 have donation pages set up that are completely legitimate. Another organization is El Otro Lado, and then Raices, which is R-A-I-C-E-S. For dreamers, the organization um, to check into is United We Dream. They're a national organization. And then here in New York, the New York Immigration Coalition, and in Albany, the Legal Project. Those are all organizations that I've worked with over the years. Um, Sarah, I want to thank you so much for coming back on Psych Up Live. This is such a difficult area. You really clarified some important points for us. And mostly thank you and all of your attorney colleagues for the Herculean task that you continue to do as you reach out to help people. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. Um, I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast by 6 p.m. tonight. This will be a podcast on my host site, on my website, on the podcast app of your iPhone, on iTunes, on Voice America, Psych Up Live, on Sketcha. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Mostly, until next week, please take care, thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.